crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. John has been, uh, been serving the Lord for a long time, but yet his excitement has not waned in, in the least. Matter of fact, I think if you read his writings, the closer he gets uh, to the grave or to the return, the more excited he becomes, and he becomes uh, a, a little bit more descriptive about the things that he knows and he understands. The Gospel of John is a very simple gospel. If you, ever, if you ever run across a new believer and they're asking you what's a good book for them to start reading when they first get saved, I always point them to the Gospel of John because it is so simple, uh, very, very clear. Uh, but when you come to the epistles in the book of Revelation, uh, the simplification process kind of goes by the wayside, especially when you get, get to Revelation because there is some very deep theology in both of the, or all four of those books. And it's fascinating to see how, as his faith has grown, so his, has his knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ grown. So I want to begin reading in verse number 9. And we'll just read down the ways. And I'm going to do my best to cover the remainder of the chapter. If we don't get to the end of it, so be it. We'll go as far as we can get. He says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice which spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded by his chest with a golden band. And his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell down at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive evermore. Amen. And then... I'll conclude with this. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So there's a few things I want to point out to you about this. First of all, is I want to talk a little bit about the setting. We know that it's about 60 years after, after the crucifixion because of the day that this took place. This was around the year 95 A.D. It's thought that John was probably at least in his late 60s, more likely in his early 70s. Some scholars will tell you that he was even into his 80s at the time of this writing. He had undergone great persecution. I touched on it just a little bit last week. Uh, Domitian, uh, the emperor of Rome, had decided that he was going to eradicate the Roman Empire of any hint of Christianity. So they began to persecute the Christians in, in uh, terrible ways. They, they fed many to the lions. They imprisoned many. They executed others by beheading them. Uh, many were crucified. And some were, just, uh, some were sent away to places where they couldn't affect the kingdom anymore. But here's the thing. Regardless of what they did and how they persecuted, it's important to note that John just wouldn't stop. 
Kind of reminds you of over in the book of Acts when it talks about Peter and John being arrested and they carry him to the jail. And they say to him, look, guys, you've got to quit talking about this guy, Jesus. And if you don't quit, then seriously bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to come in harm's way. Probably it's going to be more fierce than you're going to want to withstand. Now, I don't know about you guys, but had I been told that, probably my first reaction would have been, okay, I'm shutting up now. But that wasn't what Peter and John did. The Spirit of God was, was so real in their life and so powerful in their lives. When they left the jail, the first thing they did is walked out on the street and they began to tell people about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So what John did as a young man translated into what John did as a senior man. And now we read in verse number 9 that he has been exiled to an island called Patmos. And he had been sent there in verse number 9. It tells us for the Word of God and for his testimony. So as I said, he just wouldn't hush. Now Patmos is it's a very small island, about nine miles by six miles, so roughly 54 square miles. A uh, pretty desolate place, not a place that you'd want to go take your uh, beach vacation on. Uh, it's not like going to the Caribbean or something. Um, not a lot of vegetation, very limited population. So John is very isolated. That's his physical location. Think about this for just a minute. Physically, he is isolated from everybody that he cares about and everything that he loves. He is isolated from his church. He is isolated from his friends. He is isolated from his family, physically speaking. But if you'll notice in verse number 10, he says something very significant at the very first part of that verse. He says, I was in the Spirit. So John has two locations, right? Physically, he is on the Isle of Patmos, exiled. But spiritually, he is in the Lord. Now, I'll tell you what that means to you and I. We as believers, we all have two locations that we reside in. Physically, our church is here in Rome, Georgia. Many of us live here in Rome, Georgia. Some of us live on the outskirts of Rome. Maybe Silver Creek, maybe Armurchie, wherever. Model, Shannon, wherever. But, but we have a physical location that we reside in here on the earth. But we also have another location as believers. It's in the Spirit of God. And it's always important to keep a balance between those two locations that we, that we reside in. You see, if we become too spiritual, if we only focus on the spiritual location, then we tend to lean toward mysticism. Uh, and what I mean by that is we misunderstand what separation is, that God has separated us out, out of the world that we live in. But yet, if we focus only on the physical location, then we become materialistic in our views, and we misunderstand what sanctification is. I was thinking about this concept earlier today, and, and here's the way I, I, I've come uh, up with to relate it to our everyday lives. One of the great things, I think, that has taken place in our town in recent years is the redevelopment of our Broad Street. Now, I don't necessarily agree with everything that goes on down there, but there has been a lot of economic development. A lot of shops have come into that area. And one of the things that some of the building owners have done that maybe owns the business on the bottom floor is they have made apartments in the upper floors for themselves. I actually know a couple of different people who own a business on the bottom, and they live up top. So, so the way to say it is they work down there, but they live up there. And that's true of us as believers, right? 
You see, the Bible tells us that we have a work to do. The, the Lord said to labor until He comes so that we know that we have a continual labor. We are to be about our Father's business. We are to be out in the highways and hedges compelling people to come into the house of God and into the kingdom of God. That is our constant labor. So we are working here, but we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. That means that this, home, this world is not our home. It's where we're physically located, but spiritually, our home is up in heaven above. So, he tells us about his location, but he also tells us about his time. Notice what he says in that same verse, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Very important that we note that. You see, he's referring to a particular day of the week. We know that our Jewish friends, they worship on the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath is Saturday, it's, it's the seventh day of the week. They worship on that day to commemorate creation. We worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, which is the day that the Lord rose. And we worship on that day so we can commemorate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he gives us some, some ideas of what's going on here. Here's John, he's isolated, but yet he's not. He's in a place that no one would want to be. Yet he is also in a place that every believer should want to be. And he's in that place on a very special day. A day that his mind goes back to when he went to that tomb and he saw that Jesus was gone. He remembers back to the day when he first recognized that the words of Jesus were true. That he rose from the dead. They tore, it, tore him down and three days later he was rebuilt by the power of God to step out of that tomb alive and well. So on the Lord's day, he's there, and he is in the Spirit of God. Think about this for just a minute. Man, my mind just began, when, when I was studying for this, my mind began to race about this. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. How wonderful would it be that if every believer who went to church on the Lord's day could say, I'm in the Spirit of God. Now, now here's something to think about. We know that when we're saved, each one of us are indwelt with the Spirit of God, Right? The Bible teaches us that the Spirit of God comes to live within us. He resides in us. It's that Spirit of God that teaches us and uh, leads us on a journey of sanctification. Uh, he leads us into repentance when we do things that aren't right. He is the Spirit of God who speaks to our, our minds and our hearts to direct our lives and, and to show us what we are to be as believers. He lives within us. Every believer has to say that the Spirit of God lives in me. But while the Spirit of God is in every believer, not necessarily every believer is always in the Spirit of God. There's a difference. You see, to be in the Spirit of God, not just having the Spirit of God in you, but to be in the Spirit requires an act of daily submission. Paul would, would say it something like this, that you have to die to yourself. You have to sacrifice yourself every day. You have to, you have to release control of your own life. And every day say, Lord, I don't want to make the decisions of the day. I don't want to speak the words of the day. I want you to do that for me. I want you to be my voice, and I want you to be my steps, and I want you to be my hands. And Lord, I want to be responsive to whatever you prompt me to do. Now that's being in the Spirit of God. So think about this. If we were believers who not only had the Spirit in us, but we were in the Spirit of God, when we come into God's house... What an amazing difference that would make. You see, at, at that point, 
it would all be about Jesus. It, it would be centrally focused upon Him because that's what the Spirit does. The Spirit of God reveals Jesus. The Spirit of God magnifies Jesus. The Spirit of God causes believers to do those same things as well. And over the years of ministry and over the years of, of pastoring and preaching, one thing I have come to understand is that there is nothing worthwhile unless the Spirit of God is the one that is pushing it. So when we come into His house, I want to challenge you. When you come to His house this week, you be prayed up, you be ready, you be filled with the Spirit of God. When you walk in those doors, the people around you are going to see, see something special. They're going to respond to that. And you being in the Spirit of God may lead someone else to be in the Spirit of God as well. And when we're all in the Spirit of God, I'm going to tell you, great and amazing things will happen. So here he is. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. How important is it really? You know, I, I've been thinking about this as well. If... If we were to have notification, regardless of where you stand politically, if we were to have notification that the President of the United States was going to come to this place this coming Sunday, what would we do? We'd, we'd do everything we could to make it right, wouldn't we? We'd dot every I, we'd cross every T. We'd make sure that everything was right in place. We'd make sure that we were at our best and that we were prepared when he walked in that door to receive the President of our great nation. Well, I want to tell you something. Every week, the one who created that present comes into this place. He is present in this house. And every week, we ought to have the same intent, the purposeful intent to prepare ourselves and to prepare this place so that when he comes in here, everything is just as well as it possibly could be. That means we ought to pray. That means we ought to read the Word of God. That means we ought to empty ourselves of any selfish desires that we may have and come in here and just, just simply say, Jesus, we want you to be magnified, and whatever that means, let it be. So here, here's, here's John. That's the setting. But there's more to it than just the setting. There's also the structure. Look in verse number 19, and we're going to kind of bounce back and forth here. Verse number 19, he says, Write the things which you have seen, and things which are, and things which will take place after this. Now, last week, I just kind of skirted over it. Verse number 3, um, it, it tells us there's a blessing attached to this book. Uh, blessed is he who reads and hears and does the things which are recorded in this book. It's a threefold blessing. The book of Revelation is the only book in the Bible that, that spells out that blessing for us anywhere in it. But also in the book of Revelation, as we just read in verse number 19... There's a threefold outline of the book, the only book in the Bible that does that. And it tells us that the book is going to be about three different things. One, the things that you have seen, things of the past. So if you look back uh, over the verses we've already covered, verse number five, for example, it, it talks about Jesus, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So he's talking about things that Jesus did in the past, how that Christ went to the cross, how that Christ was uh, crucified, he died, he was raised from the dead, and now he loves us enough to wash us in his own blood. John is recording past history. But also in verse number 19, not only tells us about things of the past, those things that you have seen, but also the things which are. It's a promise of the present. It's talking about things that are happening right now. Now, there's no debate whatsoever. Chapters 2 and chapters number 3 of the book of Revelation is written about seven churches in Asia Minor. 
And there are those who would say that John's writings were specifically for those churches in that time period. That those were physical churches that were alive and well at the time that John wrote the book of Revelations. And he outlines the characteristics of each one of those churches. Their strengths and their weaknesses. Places where they uh, glorify the name of the Lord. And uh, places where uh, the Lord's disappointed in their service. But also, there is a... uh, There's a contingency of believers that believe those seven churches in chapters 2 and chapter number 3 represent the churches of every age. That anywhere in history that you look from the book of Acts all the way up to now, you can find the characteristics of those churches at any particular point in that age. Uh, The early church may have fit uh, the first church that's mentioned, the church of Ephesus. That they had a great passion, that they had a great calling, that they had a great effect, but they had wandered away from their first love. And there's no doubt that the church after the book of Acts began to wander away from that first love, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. They got entangled in some things. Uh, The waters got muddied, and church history will tell you that they began to stray away from the Word of God some. So we might say the, the first... 80 to 100 years after the book of Acts was all about the church at Ephesus and, and then so on and so forth down the line. But there's also a contingency of, of scholars who would tell you that you could take any church right now in our contemporary era and you could compare it to one of these seven churches. That every church has characteristics of these churches within the body of that body of Christ, that particular body of Christ. So my point is this. My point is, he's writing about things which are right now. And what is right now? Well, right now is the age of grace. It's the time that the Lord has given for people to come to saving faith. It's a specific, limited period of time in which a non-believer who is convicted by the Holy Spirit can come to Christ for forgiveness of their sins. They can repent from those sins and they can be given eternal life in the kingdom of God by accepting Christ as their Savior. Now, here's the thing about that, is that is a specific period of time. The age of grace is set for a number of days. I don't know the number. No one knows the number of those days because only God is the one who's in charge of that, and only God knows that number. But here's the thing. If you're not a believer, then it is exceptionally urgent that you become a believer, not next week, but right now. Now, you say, Tony, it's Wednesday night crowd. You're preaching to the choir. I know that. I understand that. But I'm just saying, if you're not a believer, you need to make sure that you are a believer because the Bible says over in the book of 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 that now is the accepted time and that today is the day of salvation. It makes no guarantees about five seconds from now and certainly not about tomorrow. Here's the other aspect of it. We as believers all know someone who's not a believer, right? There are people in our families, people who live in our neighborhoods, people who we work with. And we are called to be the hands of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, and the voice of Jesus in this world. And we are called to tell them the gospel, to share the good news. As Jesus shared the good news, so are we to share the good news. And there has to be an urgency with that to know that tomorrow's not guaranteed. Today may be the only opportunity you have to share the gospel with them. This may be the only moment that Christ gives you. I know I have instances in my life where God has just opened up the doors for me to share the gospel, and I didn't take advantage of it. And I look back over those times and think, man, not only did I fail the Lord, but I failed that person as well. 
Because I don't know that they'll ever have another opportunity to hear the gospel, much less receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So there has to be an urgency to it. So the things which were, the things which are, and the things which shall be. Look in verse number 19 again. He says, the things which will take place after this. So now he's talking about perspective things. And, and here's something very interesting. I told you chapters 2 and chapters 3 were written about the churches. So I want you to turn over to the last of chapter number 3 for me. Chapter 3 and verse number 22. And I want to show you something. Do you see the last word of chapter number 3? Churches, right? Well, if you look in chapter number 4, verse number 1, the next verse after that, I want to read it with you. Keep in mind, the last word is churches in chapter 3. After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet, important word, like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After what? What is this? After the churches. Kind of, the structure and the wording of that, does it remind you of anything? Maybe over in 1 Thessalonians, where the Bible says that there's going to come a time, a day, when the voice of God is going to sound like the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, and then he says, so shall we ever be with the Lord. So John is making reference to something that God had revealed to Paul as well. That there's going to come a time when the trumpet of God is going to sound and that last word of chapter number 3, churches, is going to be called up in the air. That it's going to be raptured out of this world. It's going to be taken away. And when you read Revelation, it becomes blaringly obvious, blazingly obvious, I guess would be a word that would work too, that from chapter number 4 and verse number 1, all the way through the end of the book of Revelation, that the word church is not found again in reference to the early church, uh, earthly church. That the church has been called out, it has been taken away. And that means this, the age of grace has ended. There is a change of time between the end of chapter number 3 and the beginning of chapter number 4, a change in God's dispensation. The God who spoke into creation and uh, spoke about saving grace and gave us the opportunity to repent of our sins and come to Christ is now going to consummate it all. Remember last week I told you that it was as if God is pulling all the strings of prophecy together and all the strings of history together. And He is bringing it all to this one point in time to where His work is going to change, that history is going to be changed forever. So what he's going to show Paul, uh, I'm sorry, John is things that have happened. John experienced those. Things that were taking place right then, all the way through the end of the age, and things that are going to take place after the rapture of the church. So we have the subject of the book. We have the setting of the book. I, I'm sorry, we have the scenery of the book and the setting of the book. And here's the third thing and the final thing is the subject of the book. Look at verse number 12. Chapter number 1, verse number 12. I'm sorry. I need to define which chapter I'm in. Don't I? 
He says, Then I turned to see the voice which spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. And his head and hair were like were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, let's just stop right there for just a second. John is not going to see Jesus as he was. I said that. He is seeing him as he is now. Sometimes people will tell you that they've had a vision of the Lord, and I'm always interested to hear what they saw when they tell me that. If you have someone tell you they had a vision of the Lord and they talk about the blood dripping down his brow or or seeing the nails in his hands or any of that, they're not seeing Jesus as he is now. They're seeing Jesus as he was in the past. Because while Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, we know that Jesus is no longer the sacrificial lamb. He is the resurrected, ascended, glorified King of kings and Lord of lords. And this is the picture that John is getting. Now keep in mind, I'm going to show you real quickly. I'm going to go through them just like that. An eightfold description that he has here. But keep in mind, John is trying to describe a heavenly being with earthly language. He's trying to describe that which is indescribable. And that's why you will see in verses 13 through 15, him use the phrase like or the word like or as. Uh, I think it's seven times that he uses them there. And it's because he has no words to really describe what he's seeing. But it is so wonderful, so glorious, so majestic that he does the very best he can. And he begins by talking about his clothing in verse number 13. He said he was clothed with a garment down to his feet. Now what he is seeing is a priestly robe. He's talking about the Jesus. We're talking about Jesus as he is now. He's talking about the Jesus who makes intercession for you and I. Have you ever heard the phrase, clothing makes the man? I've heard that a lot in my life. That's not true. Clothing doesn't make a man. Clothing marks a man. We had one of our church members come by today, and he is a fireman. If you didn't know he was a fireman, you would have known it today when he came by, simply because of the fact he had on his fireman's uniform. When he walked in the door, I thought, I know what he does for a living now. He's a fireman. If you see a, a policeman out on the street, how do you know he's a policeman? Because he's wearing the uniform. It, not, it doesn't make the man, but it tells us what the man does. So here John is seeing Jesus in a priestly garment. And it tells us that he is, he is our high priest. He's, he's a high priest who is moved with our feelings of infirmities. He's a high priest who truly cares about what's going on in our lives. He is a high priest that lives to make intercession for you and I. He is continually praying for his children, us, the believers. But he goes on. Not only is he a high priest, he says that he also was girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, that's the, that's the signature of a king's clothing. He had a golden band around his chest. So now he's not talking about the sacrificial lamb. He's talking about the one who is Lord over all. You know, in human history, there have always been a lot of people who viewed themselves as a god. They had a god complex. Historically, we can look back and we can say people such as um, Nero. Nero, for example, believed he was a god. He genuinely believed he was a god, but he wasn't. Stalin had a god complex in Russia. He thought that he was the judge of all mankind and that he could shape and form society 
to fit his desires. He wasn't God. Hitler had a God complex. He thought he could purge the earth of a whole race. But he wasn't God. You know why? Because there is only one God. One God and one Son of God. And the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, one day Nero is going to bow and he's going to confess Jesus as Lord. Stalin is going to bow and he's going to confess Jesus as Lord. Adolf Hitler is going to bow and confess Jesus as Lord. John says, I see him. I see him. He is up there at the right hand of God the Father. He is interceding for you and I. And he is doing it with the authority of the king over all. And then he goes on in verse number 14. He talks about his hair. He says his hair was as white as wool. Now, the white represents purity. It speaks of the fact that Jesus never committed any sins. You know, I was thinking about this simple concept of how that sin is alluring to us. It draws us. It pulls us. And I thought, how can I explain that in terms that mean something to me? Sin is kind of like a Snickers bar with me on a 30-day fast, if that makes sense to you. You put that Snickers bar in front of me, and I'm probably going to run over you to get to it. It's drawing. It pulls. It, it yanks at my soul. And that's what sin does to us. Sin is very alluring to us as human beings. There's something about it that makes us want to participate in it. Makes us want to have it in our lives until we get it. And then we realize that it doesn't taste nearly as good as we thought it would. It's just a bunch of empty calories that brings us just more hardships and sorrows later on down the road. Jesus never, never sinned. Sin was alluring to him. The Bible says that he was tempted. And always as, as we're tempted. We read about him being carried out in the wilderness and tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. How that Satan did his best to cause him to fall into this trap of sin. And you know, it's amazing when you think about it. His friends knew that he was sinless. His cousin John, John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, John the Baptist. He said it this way, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When he says that, you know what he's saying? He's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. And he's talking about that lamb that was carried up to the temple mount to be sacrificed. And that lamb had to meet very specific qualifications to even qualify to shed its blood for the sins of the people. It had to essentially be perfect. No spots on its skin. No wrinkles. No dark wool. No blemishes. No no spots on its gums. It had to be absolutely spotless. And then he's also referring to the scapegoat. The scapegoat is the one they would place the sin symbolically on. And then they would hit that scapegoat and it would run off into the wilderness never to be seen again. John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is absolutely perfect and is going to carry our sins away so that they can never return again. That was somebody that loved him. But what about people that hated him? Even they had to admit that he had no, no faults. No sins, no wrinkles, no blemishes. The soldiers who went out to arrest him for, for sharing the good news of God's grace, they came back and this is what they, they, they told the religious leaders. They said, we've never heard a guy talk like this. <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with him. Or how about, how about Pilate? I, I mean, you think about it. Pilate looked at the crowd and he said, I don't find any fault in this man. 
or even the great betrayer, Judas. The enemy, the arch enemy. What did he say about Jesus? I have betrayed innocent blood. There was no fault in him. So the hair represents that faultlessness. But look at verse number 14 when it talks about his eyes as well. His eyes were as a flame of fire. Now, usually when we talk about Jesus, we imagine Jesus with eyes that are compassionate. And they are. Eyes full of grace and mercy. Loving eyes. But John sees him with eyes that are penetrating. Eyes that see to the depths of all. Eyes who can, with one look, Span the entire globe. Eyes to where the Bible says that all things are open and naked before the Lord. We might hide things from the people around us. We might hide things from ourselves. But folks, there's nothing hidden from the Lord. He sees it all. And then he goes on to talk about his feet in verse number 15. His feet were like fine brass as refined in a, in a furnace. That, that speaks of judgment. Now, now here's something I want you to catch. And I, I'm getting close to the end. If you look in verse number 13, John says in verse 12, he says, I turned around to see who was talking to me. And in verse number 13, he said, and he was in the midst of the seven lampstands. That doesn't mean much when we first read it, right? But I want you to look down at verse number 20. What are the seven lampstands? This is the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand or the, and the seven golden lampstands. Hmm. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. That's the messengers of the churches. That's the pastors he's talking about. So the stars are the, are the pastors, but the lampstands, what are they? And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now this is important. You see, when you talk about brass in the Bible, brass is always representative of judgment. So John sees Jesus standing there with the brass, the feet of brass. And where is he standing? In the midst of the churches. Isn't that a little bit frightening? To think that Jesus is in the midst of our churches and he's examining us. He's examining our motivations. He examines our actions not just for results, but as in intent he sees to the depths of our hearts now that's a challenge to me that that's a terrifying challenge to me i'll be honest with you because that tells me that i need to be pure in my motivations of, of what i do when i do it and how i do it when i speak to you my motivations need to be pure what i say to you needs to come out of the love of god how i interact with you needs to be because of the grace of god now I've been in church a long time. All my life I've been in church. Been involved in, in church leadership for uh, 25 years now. And I'm going to tell you something. I've done things, said things that were just purely Tony Cargill. <laughs> I mean, there have been things I've done. And I look back on now and I think, man, what was I thinking? Things that, that were just flat out wrong. And then I read something like this and I, I just have to pray, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for what I've done in the past and teach me not to ever do it again in the future. Help me to be the personality of Jesus among the people of Jesus. Help me to love others, to be respectful, to be patient, to be kind, to be long-suffering as the Lord is long-suffering. To, to interact with grace and mercy. To know that I'm not the only saved person in the world. 
And to understand that when people do make mistakes, that I'm not to condemn or judge, but I'm to forgive. And I'm, I'm to show them the same compassion that Jesus would show them if he's in the congregation. You guys ever been made mad by somebody at church by something they said? Y'all don't act holy. Come on. Let's be honest. It happens all the time. And our, our natural reaction sometimes is snap back, right? Boom. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them. They said something rude to me, I'm going to be rude to them. That's not, that's not what the Bible teaches us. That's not how it teaches us to be. The Bible teaches us to be loving and to be kind. I, I love what Paul preached on a few weeks ago. Paul has stuck in me for years. Be kind to one another. I remember that story about your son. Be kind. And we have to be kind to one another, even when we don't agree. You know, we're never, ever going to agree on everything altogether. You realize that, right? If you take everybody out of this room but two people, I can guarantee you those two people will find something to disagree about before the night's over. Husbands and wives, you know that, right? I mean, just admit it. My wife is wrong 99.9% .9 of the time, unless she's here. <laughs> Amen, Bill? <laughs> she's always right. That's right. Even when we disagree, there's a command to be kind and to be loving. So, all right, I, I could stick on that for a while. Uh, his voice, vo vo verse number 15, uh, is as the sound of many waters. You ever been to a waterfall? Commanding, right? It's mesmerizing. It's, it's almost frightening. When Jesus speaks, think about it. When Jesus speaks, winds and waves lay down like whipped little puppies. When Jesus speaks... The dead can rise. And I'm not just talking about physical dead. That, that's, that's not the worst death. I'm talking about those who are spiritually dead. When Jesus speaks, they can step out of death into life. Mm. And one day he's going to speak. He's going to speak again. You know what he's going to say? He's going to look down at the body of Christ. The building of Christ. The bride of Christ. He's going to say, come up here. <laughs> and you know what we're going to do? Oh, man, we're going to go up through the air. What a meeting that's going to be. We have great meetings here. I, I used to love family reunions until I really got to know all my family. Uh, please don't tell them that. But we'd have some good times, man. We'd get together, and we, it, was just, it was great to be together. We'd celebrate. There'd be people we hadn't seen in a decade. Man, what a good time we'd have. But I'm going to tell you, of all those meetings we ever have in my family, all the church meetings I've ever been in, there's nothing going to compare to that meeting in the air. It's going to be the greatest of all times. And then verse number 16, I told you, I'm trying, I'm, I'm almost finished. Verse number 16, he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. So remember what we said the stars were? The stars are the angels of the church, they're the messengers of the church. So Jesus has the messengers of the church, the pastors, in his hand, and he is sending out something with them, and it is the word of God. It is sharp, like a two-edged sword. Hebrews 4 and 12 says this, the word is, a live, is living, powerful, and it is sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing, even dividing the soul and the spirit. It is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. That word spoke creation. That word is going to speak judgment, and it's going to speak consummation. And then here's verse number 16, the countenance. In verse number 16, he said, uh, and his countenance was like the shining sun, or the sun shining in its strength. The churches are the lampstand. The angels are the stars, are, are the angels of the church, the messenger. But Jesus Christ is the sunshine. And in verse number 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell down at his feet like a dead man. When we have an encounter with Christ, 
it can be a life-changing experience. It can be frightening. It can be invigorating. It can be revealing. It can be consuming. It can be emotions that we have never encountered before, thoughts we've never encountered before. But John said, when I saw him, I was like a dead man. There was great reverence there for what he was seeing. And then in verse number 18, and I'm stopping right here. After he tells him not to be afraid, he said, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive evermore. You know what separates Christianity from any other religion in the world? Have you ever just sat back and thought about it? Is it our pageants, our ceremonies, our services, our sanctuaries? It's, it, it's none of those things. It's the fact that we have a risen Savior. You know, when we talk about religious leaders, even, even in Christianity, when we talk about religious leaders, we have to talk about them in past tense, typically, right? Those biblical leaders. Think about it. We talk about Moses. He's in past tense. Why? Because he died. We talk about Isaiah. He's in past tense because he died. Joshua, past tense because he died. More, more contemporary. How about Paul? When we talk about Paul, Paul's dead. Or how about the writer of Revelation, John? He's past tense because he's dead. All of them are past tense except for one, and that's Jesus. He is in the present. And, and you know I'm amazed when I study the Gospels of all the things Jesus did on earth. It's fascinating when you see how he, he touched people and changed their lives. Uh, let's, let's say you're related to a man named Bartimaeus. Now, isn't that a testimony? You just go and sit down and talk to Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus will tell you, you know what? I was blind. My, I, I couldn't see a thing. The whole world was dark to me. And I, I heard Jesus was coming by, and I, I began to cry out, and he came over, and he touched me, and now I can see. Man, that's amazing, isn't it? Or, or uh, how about uh, the man with palsy? Spent his life on a bed because he couldn't control his body parts, but yet Jesus touched him, made him whole. He cast out demons. He walked on water. All those things are absolutely amazing. But I want to tell you something. It is conceivable that you could still have the Christian faith if none of those things ever took place, if he never met Bartimaeus, if he never walked upon the water, if the man with Paul's friends didn't care enough to carry him over to see Jesus, we could still have the Christian faith. But ladies and gentlemen, you cannot have the Christian faith without the resurrection. Unless Christ is alive, there is no Christian faith. But since He is alive, we have every reason to believe, to hope, to trust, and to live in the faith whereby we have been granted or which we have been granted. It makes all the difference in the world. I was thinking about a song this afternoon, and I actually asked Tom if he knew the song. Tom loves this song, by the way. <laughs> I say that sarcastically. But it's one I grew up singing, and it just goes up from the grave he arose. Y'all remember that song? With a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose the victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with the saints to reign. You may have to hit this note, Kurt. He arose. Yeah, you got to hit that. Let me drop it down. He arose. <laughs> but here's how it ends. Hallelujah, Christ arose. And he did. John says, I see him. Not as he was. Not beaten. Not dead. Not buried. But I see him alive. And I see him there on the right hand of the throne of God. When you're reading Revelation... That's the key. All the signs, all the symbolism, it all goes back to that one fact. 
that Jesus Christ is the living King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you, we thank you for the fact that we do have a risen Savior. That he is living every moment of every day to make intercession for us. As we pray to you, he is praying to you as well. And he is doing it on our behalf. It is because of him that we have the opportunity to enter into the very throne room of your grace. To come into your amazing presence and to make our request known. Tonight, Father, I pray that you would not only take the word that we've heard tonight and make it a part of our everyday living, but all the words that we would hear from this point forward. God, may the book of Revelation come alive in our minds and our hearts. May we be able to discern the message that you have for us every single time that we sit down to study it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. Uh, remember our pastor, he's going to pick up his wife tonight and at the airport, so they're, they're probably on their way home right now. And uh, see you back Sunday. Invite somebody to come be with you. Guys, let's come in the Spirit of God this Sunday. See what God does special in our church. All right, great to see you.